I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. You just have to be kind to yourself. It made me really excited for art that is yet to come. It's about recognition, wanting to see yourself. The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. There's been a lot of AI anxiety this summer. It's unnerved workers who fear being replaced. That's one of the reasons the actors and writers went on strike. Meanwhile, newsrooms and universities are developing protocols to deal with chatbots, and publishers are doing the same with AI-generated fiction. But for many novelists, AI is turning out to be a great source of stories. The Giller winner Shawn Michaels saw it as a fascinating subject matter for his new novel, It's called Do You Remember Being Born? And Sean tells the story of what happens when a prize-winning poet collaborates with a big-tech poetry AI. It's a story that raises all kinds of questions about art, humanity, and the nature of work. Sean joins me in half an hour. Yasuko Tan closes the program with her novel, To the Bridge. It's about a mother trying to save her daughter, who may not want to save herself. And we open today with another mother-daughter story from the inventive mind of Mona Awad. Mona's new novel is called Rouge. It's a horror-tinged fairy tale that explores the dark cost of the cult of youth and beauty. I'm Ryan B. Patrick. Welcome to the next chapter. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? When the queen doesn't like the answer to that, Snow White ends up in her crosshairs. The dark obsession with youth and beauty that underpins the story of Snow White is at the heart of Mona's new novel, Rouge. It's the story of Mirabelle, a young woman who spends her days immersed in skincare videos and rituals. When the story opens, Mirabelle's mother, a great beauty, has recently died under mysterious circumstances. So Belle, as she's known leaves her home in Montreal to go to her mother's funeral in California. From there, we enter a gothic fever dream of mothers and daughters and the seemingly never-ending pursuit of beauty. Mona Wad joins me now from her home in Boston. Hello, Mona, and welcome back to the next chapter. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love your work. I've loved all your work, whether, whether it's Bunny or, or All's Well or this new one, Rouge, kind of like stepping into a, like a surrealist painting with fairy tales. How intentional is your signature or trademark exploring like darkness and surrealism and stuff like that? How intentional is that type of writing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. Um, I... I don't think it is very intentional. Mm. I think it usually starts with some kind of, for me, it's a, some kind of fixation, some kind of obsession that I experience in my in my life, something that I observe that like just sticks with me, that makes me feel maybe vulnerable, powerless, enchanted, maybe all three. Um, in the case of <laughs> skincare videos, certainly all three. And then I just decide that I'm going to pursue it in a story form. And I think I learned after my first book that there is there is something about entering into the surreal, the unreal, the fantastic, that just allows me to be more truthful about what it is that I want to explore, the, the very real question or issue or fixation that I have. Mm. Uh, when I mentioned at the opening, who is the fairest of them all, that's probably not a question anyone should ask. <laughs> and yet I think it's a question that young girls kind of pick up almost by osmosis. What What do you think about that question? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's such a loaded question, mm. right? Who is determining 
who is fair and who exactly is she asking? Yeah. Um, is she asking herself? Is she, when she looks in the mirror, is she speaking to an actual entity and what is that entity comprised of? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's the thing about fairy tales that to me are just so fascinating is that some of these motifs like, like the mirror and snow white are just so fundamentally mysterious. You know, we, we really don't know who is speaking if it's the, if it's the queen's, um, consciousness, or if it is actually an outside mm -hmm. entity. Right. Um, but I was interested in really um, troubling that in this in this novel, and really making the mirror um, a sinister figure who is very instrumental in pitting um, the mother and the daughter against one another. Um, so I guess that's my answer to that question. <laughs> what do I think about that question? The parents of them all. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a question I think about a lot. My daughter, my seven, I have a seven-year-old daughter and she's of mixed heritage. And I, I think a lot about her thoughts of beauty particularly when I was reading this book, like her mother's fair, I'm darker skinned and um, she's somewhere in between. So she's had her own thoughts about wanting blonde hair or, or, or yeah. thinking about what she looks like. It's kind of the spectrum of the best of both worlds versus like a full-blown identity crisis. So, <laughs> so right. thinking, bring it to the book. Um, where does Belle, Mirabelle, where does she fall within the spectrum? Yeah, I mean, she's she is also of mixed heritage. Um, you know, her father um, comes from Egypt. Um, her mother is a, a white French Canadian um, Catholic, um, and she is very torn. This this um, this takes place in the late '80s, or at least a portion of the book takes place in the late '80s, um, and you know, she's, she's really conflicted about what makes someone beautiful. Certainly she does not feel beautiful and she thinks her mother is beautiful. Where is she getting that idea though? I mean, in the story, we're not sure. Yeah. We're not sure who, who has made this girl feel like she is less than. Um, and, and that was important to me because I do think it's, um, that's what makes it so sinister, that conflict, is that it is, it's ambiguous, it's dynamic, it's ever-shifting. Um, certainly something outside of her has made her feel that way, but what? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Belle is at the, the young woman at the center of this story, and she has this particular beauty routine that takes up so much of her day. Sometimes it leaves her little time for anything else. Uh, looking at this book in the context of exploring the evolution of feminism in terms of the beauty myth, the, the first, second, and third wave of feminism, in terms of looking at the pressures and unreality of the beauty myth, but yet it's 2023 and we're looking at pressures around physical uh, physical appearance, appearance. Uh, we're looking at influencers, we're looking at TikTok makeup videos, Sephora, Kylie Jenner. How much did you investigate that when you were writing this book? Quite a lot. You know, um, I I allowed myself to sort of just be completely um, consumed, consumed, in a, in, and, and to consume as well. I consumed as much as possible um, and allowed myself to have all the feelings about it, you know, suspicion, dread enchantment envy uh, aspiration desire everything um because i i think a lot of us uh you know and around the time that i was i was working on this book we're alone staring at our computer screens or at our phones because mm -hmm. it was just before the pandemic and then moving into the pandemic is when i really started to to work on this book so we were all very isolated myself included and and so that those that those visuals i think Ha took even more, um, ha took had even more of a grip on me uh, emotionally and psychologically. Um, but I think that as we're becoming increasingly isolated, these visuals have so much power over us. Um, it may seem like just a little bit of self-care, um, but all the subtext, all the underpinnings, that the the messaging is it's it's powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's telling you how to feel about yourself. Um, and, and it's, um, it's definitely 
doing some damage. I mean, it's, it's wonderful too. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for all things beauty. I can't help it. I just, it's in me to Mm -hmm. be a sucker for for that. I, 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 you know, I, I was enchanted by the beauty of the Disney film as much as I was terrified by it. Um, But I'm also, you know, deeply suspicious. So in the novel, I really allowed myself to, to hold them together, you know, um, both the suspicion and the critique, but also the acknowledgement that there's some real um, power here. There's some real power in beauty. Yeah. Um, and and can't deny that, you know, as problematic as it is. So Mona in the novel Rouge, um, Belle, by all accounts, is very striking, very beautiful, but she feels like insecure. Uh, she grew up watching her mother's pursuit of beauty. How much did that imprint on Belle herself? I think it really informed her idea of um, how to how to regard beauty as she moved forward in her in her life. I mean, there's this moment in the book, and I don't I don't think it will it will spoil anything for me to uh, to reveal it. But um, she learns that through her mother, that her grandmother was once a great beauty. Um, but now her grandmother is an old, you know, old woman who doesn't really uh, take any care in her appearance. And she asks her mother, what happened? You know, what happened to, to Kamama? And her mother says, well, she threw her beauty away. Mm. And Belle, who feels very, very ugly in this, in this time of her life, in her youth, tells herself if I ever get beauty I will never give it up I will never throw it away um and I think that 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 (laughs) that message that she is telling herself imprints very very deeply and of course informs her you know um in her adult life in ways that she I don't even think she's aware of and that's what I really enjoyed about this book it's it's kind of comfortable making you feel uncomfortable and it it investigates a very uncomfortable subject that that question of envy and that competition that dynamic between a mother and a daughter why why did you want to kind of explore or dig into that you know it's something that has always fascinated me um you know just in watching mothers and daughters and in in being a daughter and having had Mm. a mother watching her with her own mother um but also because i've always wanted to work with the with the story of snow white because it it is such a fascinating fairy tale to me and i just think it's so interesting the way that the mother and the daughter are pitted against one another through the mirror um and how we do all this work in adaptation to put some distance between the mother and the daughter, like the 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 mother in Snow White is often a stepmother in the most popular versions, but actually there are a number of of versions of the story that are not as popular, where she is her, simply her mother. Snow White tends to look at the daughter being the object of envy because she's younger. It's her time to kind of move into the next phase of life. And it's her mother's time to move into, you know, um, an an older phase of life to kind of fall away, to be less visible. This this is what the fairy tale implies. But I was interested in the inverse. I really wanted to explore the potential for the the daughter's envy, which I think is a very, very real thing, the daughter's envy of the mother. And it's especially loaded in this book because of the of the racial difference between the two of them as well. But it felt very important to me, and it felt like a version of Snow White that I haven't really seen, and so I, I wanted to write it. Yeah. So bringing it back to the kind of surreal elements, or, or we're talking about that discussion of color, like the scenes and the images in the book are so vivid, and it's it's almost like a fever dream. Like everything is red, the red of the rose petals, the the red of blood, and all of this swirls around Belle in almost a hallucinogenic way. Like, what 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 is your own relationship to the color red? That's a great question too. I mean, I love it. You know, <laughs> I love it because uh, you know it's beautiful, it's striking. Um, but you know, in fairy tale, which I I've loved all my life, red signals danger. Mm. Now, um, red is danger. Red can mean going home in, in a few instances. Red is vital. You know, red is blood. Um, red is life. But red is 
danger. Mm. Um, red makes you a target in Little Red Riding Hood, that red cloak. Um, it felt really important, really important in this book about skin because well, what's what's beneath the skin, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and uh, and and really, the book, even though it's it's about a woman who is obsessed with her skin. What the book is really interested in is what's underneath that yeah. obsession. So red felt very, very important um, in that regard. So Mona, in the book, Mirabelle, Bell for short, she goes to California, California after her mother has died. And she's lured into this swank and mysterious spa that is close to where her mother disappeared. And, and it turns out that this is more than just a spa. It's almost this this strange and weird, twisted kind of cult, a cult of beauty. What did you yep. base this on? <laughs> <laughs> My own dark fantasies. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I mean... I mean, I, I, I obviously, uh, I love Gothic literature. I, I especially love over the top Gothic, um, you know, villains and, and, um, like I, you know, I adore, um, Fosco and the woman in white, um, just that kind of Gothic villain is so fun, but I love the idea that, you know, the Gothic villain can be, can be funny, can be absurd, but they're still dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. Um, and that's the thing about skincare. I mean, the obsession and all all of the videos and 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 all of the seriousness about you know taking care of yourself, it's funny. It's absurd, but it's scary, you know. Mm. Um, so I really wanted to play with that in this book. I really wanted to to um to make the cult of skincare, both amusing um, and over the top because it is, yeah. um, but also truly terrifying yeah. um, because I also think that it is. Um, so, so yeah, I had, I had a lot of fun um, coming up with that, that, that spa and, um, and the people who inhabit it. It was, um, mm. it was, it's very, very fun, but it was, you know, I mean, I, I, I was definitely going into the terrain of horror because beauty wants you to go there. Mm. So uh, this book is definitely like a fever dream. At one point, a character says, self-care is really our only escape from the abyss, is it not? Like, how much does fear of aging and death drive this pursuit, this never-ending pursuit of youth and beauty? In your mind. Oh, so much. Mm. In my mind, it's everything. It's the shadow behind every single pursuit of beauty in this book. Um, but I just think it's there every time we appreciate beauty because there's always that knowledge when you appreciate something beautiful, when you feel that you're inside something beautiful, that it's going to end. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it cannot be beautiful forever. It will always have to change. And, and fairy tales are about that. I mean, Snow White, the story of Snow White is a story about the changing of the seasons, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to me, every every story about beauty is also a story about death. Um, and, and that's why, to answer, uh, just to add to the, the earlier question, that's why there are so many gothic undertones to, the, to the, the beauty world as Belle experiences it in Rouge, is because death, I think, is, is the shadow side of beauty. It's, the, it's, it's a critical, um, it's a, it's a critical force in, in how we experience beauty in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the key takeaway from what I took about this book, and I love this book, Mona, is that is of beauty, identity, and vanity. And I think it 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 really brings to bear the idea that vanity is beauty that has lost its way. And yeah. what what do you think is what's your connection to beauty, vanity, and as it relates to self worth? How how has that kind of fluctuated with you over the years? Oh man. I mean, I think it's always, that's the thing about, about it is I feel like it's constantly changing. Um, and, and that's, that's what's so mysterious about it. And so much of it, so much of it feels beyond my control, beyond the control of my thoughts, 
beyond the control, <laughs> you know, um, just even my way of seeing myself in the mirror. I mean, it, it's such a fascinating question to look in the mirror and, and ask yourself who, who is responsible for the way in which I'm perceiving myself in this moment? Mm. Um, what is responsible? Is it just me? Never. You know, it's, it's, it's always so many things going on at the same time. Right. Um, so, and I think that's the thing about it. That's so fascinating, but identity is such an important part of the equation. And I think it's for, for Bell, I think it's, it's about, it's not just about wanting to be beautiful, although certainly there's that going on. Absolutely. Um, and this, this fear about am I beautiful? Am I losing beauty? What does that mean for, for my experience of life and being alive? Um, but it's also, am I myself? Mm. Do I look in the mirror and recognize myself? Um, and as you get older, that is a fear, right? That one day you'll look in the mirror and you won't recognize yourself. Yeah. You'll look in the mirror and you'll see somebody completely different. Um, and and I, I think that that's a real anxiety that we all carry. Um, and it, it's it's one that goes beyond um, just the pursuit of beauty and youth. It's It's about recognition, wanting to see yourself, whoever is responsible for how you see yourself. Um, and so that that I think is a big part of um, the anxiety and the horror in the novel too. Mona, thank you so much for this book and thank you for the conversation. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for the amazing questions. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Mona Awad is the author of Rouge. She joined me from her home in Boston. Hi, I'm Debbie Friday and I make electronic music in Canada. I grew up in Montreal and I live in Toronto now. And right now I'm reading The Pregnant Virgin, A Process of Psychological Transformation by Marion Woodman. Uh, I was really drawn to this book because I'm a huge Marion Woodman fan. I've read multiple books of hers and I like her approach I like her writing a lot like she's a very poetic writer and I find that something like depth psychology you know sometimes it could be really dry or uninspired kind of writing but she does a really good job of making something beautiful out of a serious and a dense topic and this book in particular deals with the psychological processes of transformation and it's something that I'm really interested in decoding and understanding and kind of breaking down for myself because I find that this is a reoccurring theme in my own life and it's kind Kind of the way that I approach songwriting and just any creative endeavor. I'm very much interested in self-expression and, you know, getting out what is on the inside. And in order to do that, you have to be able to look beneath the surface. You have to be able to go deeper if you want to say something that's true and that's going to be able to resonate and connect with people. I would 100% recommend this book. I would recommend any Marion Woodman book, especially if you're interested in just gaining more self-awareness. And for me, it's about understanding the world that we live in. And I think that allows me to understand other people, which in turn allows me to understand myself because everything's really connected. That's Toronto-based Debbie Friday with So Hard to Tell. Her debut album, Good Luck, is on the shortlist for the 2023 Polaris Music Prize. The winner will be awarded at the Polaris Gala on September 19th, presented by CBC Music. We'll be right back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? 
Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's good? I'm Britta Bador, a.k.a. Britta B.A. You Know Me, the author of Wires That Sputter. And you are listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. The beauty of Yasukotan's writing is underscored by a sense of the often stark reality of life and living. This graceful and gritty dynamic reveals itself in her award-winning debut novel, Mysterious Fragrance of the Yellow Mountains, her short story collection, Floating Like the Dead, and her memoir, Mistakes to Run With. Her latest novel, To the Bridge, is a haunting story about mother-daughter love. The book explores the highs and lows of a mother-daughter relationship and the breathtaking lengths a parent will take to protect her daughter and save her family. I reached Yasuko Tan at her home in Victoria. And just a warning, our conversation touched on difficult subjects like suicide and self-harm. Hello and welcome to the next chapter. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, before we talk about To the Bridge, I really love your work in terms of your past novels, Mysterious Fragrance of the Yellow Mountains, Floating Like the Dead, and the memoir Mistakes to Run With. What I find is that you've never been afraid to kind of go there, writing that's raw, that's authentic and, and real. What keeps you so open-minded as a writer at this point? Aw, shucks. Thank you. Um <laughs> What keeps me open-minded as a writer? I think, um, you know, it's just life informing the work. Mm. If you've read the memoir, then you also know that a large part of my youth was spent on the street and street kids are heavily stigmatized. Mm. So I think um, having dealt with that at a fairly young age, just kind of hardwired my brain for seeing things a certain way. And, you know, I always get my back up when Mm. um, reality butts up against society's stereotypes, I guess. Right. Yeah. So the open mindedness is almost like a social justice mission. maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So new novel, To the Bridge, the story is about Juliet. She's the daughter of the main character, Rose. Juliet attempts to take her own life. So this sets a story in motion. But we're talking about suicide. We're talking about potential self-harm. What guidelines were you following in terms of triggering people or talking about suicide? Like, how are you capturing the tone in that regard? Gosh, you know, that's a really good question. As writers, uh and, you know, editors of magazines or juries, um, et cetera, are really beginning to think about how to care for the reader as Mm -hmm. we're writing. In what way can we approach difficult subject matters, not without triggering people, but just being aware that that possibility exists and having that influence the way we write, which is, you know, for me, um, I guess, fairly new. And so there was this one part of me that resisted that, not to be mean, you know, not in a cruel way, but just, you know, first and Mm. foremost, what was important was that the writing be honest. And then if I could go back in revision and somehow soften something so that it still gets a point across, but perhaps I'm not doing it as viscerally, well, then that was uh, sort of something I had to balance. But it's an interesting question. I, I would say, So more often than not, I try not to think about things like that and just let the story come and then apply that sort of critical thinking uh, at a later stage. Right. I'm definitely with you in terms of trying not to think about that. I think the situation is every parent's worst fear. Like I have a seven-year-old daughter, so she's not quite a teen uh, like Juliet in the novel, but it's like these things happen. So what was the relationship like with Rose and Juliet prior to this event? I think that Rose saw her relationship with Juliet as much closer than it was, perhaps. And, you know, every parent has sort of gotten into that mode of parenting where where life is busy, you're at work, the kids are in school, you know, so long as nobody is causing a huge fuss or uproar 
um, everything is going along tickety-boo and you just sort of rest in this gentle knowledge that, oh, you know, like I know everything that's going on with my kids. Certainly they would let me know if things weren't okay because we have that type of relationship. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately for, for Rose, you know, it turns out that Juliet was hiding a lot of her feelings until it all comes to the front. Right. Juliet, she's such an interesting teen. Like on the surface, she's she's loved, but she still feels isolated, and and she's searching for something more. Like, what is she going through? I think that she is also perhaps not admitting certain things to herself about who she is, rationalizing her self harm, for instance. You know, so as long as I'm making art, I'm okay. Or, you know, going out and partying with friends. Well, as long Mm. as I'm still doing that, I'm okay. And in the book, I don't know if anybody ever comes up with a solid answer for the why. Right. You know, why is it that somebody chooses to take their own life on any particular day? Because she's going through all of these different things. But then something switches and there's there's one day that she just decides no. Mm. And I don't know if we if we ever have an answer for that. It's like anybody who has dealt with suicide will know that, you know, that's kind of always the search, even if there's a, a note or something that's left. You know, I don't I don't know if if um, Juliet even really deep down knows what it is that uh she's going through, if that Mm, makes sense. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk about Rose's support system in terms of what she's going through. Like her husband is Sid. He's someone that has his own issues while this is all happening, while it's all unfolding. How supportive is Sid to Rose and Juliet? I think that Sid could probably have been more of a support to Rose had they known how to properly lean on each other. But... Although both of them want the happy family and the white picket fence, neither one of them really knows how to get it. Not having grown up with it, not having seen the examples in their own lives with their parents of, oh, these are kind of the steps that you take. Um, You know, they don't know how to get there. And I don't think that they've ever really learned how to communicate well, not only, um, you know, with each other, but just society And so lacking these skills and lacking the actual, you know, vocabulary to talk about what's going on, the distance just continues to grow and get filled by, well, in Rose's case, another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. let's let's talk about that other person. It's a best friend named Ron. He's someone that she confides in, someone she trusts, someone she leans on. But how healthy is this connection? It ends up not being very healthy. In the beginning, you know, Rose sees him as her lifesaver. And, you know, it is somewhere for her to go and unload. And Ron somehow seems to be able to pick up on what she needs at any moment and be able to give that to her, whether it's the right words or whether it's a joint or a drink or a walk. And that's something that she really needs at that particular time. So I think what To the Bridge revealed to me is that we can never escape our past. Like there's some things that we'll never be able to process or or reconcile. But how fundamentally is Rose trying to be a better person or a better mother or a better partner? She's lost in the weeds. Mm. Um, Rose is awfully motivated to get Juliet the, you know, quote unquote help that she needs. But Rose herself, despite having been asked by multiple people during the book, you know, are you looking after yourself? Do you have someone to talk to? Just kind of keeps pushing her own self to the wayside and everything is focused on Juliet to the detriment of Juliet. Right. So I found this book to be dark, raw, emotional, but somewhat affirming in a way. Like, Oh, yay. I'm so glad <laughs> to hear you say that. <laughs> Affirmation is good. 
Yeah. So what keeps you affirmed or validated or appreciated uh, as a person or as a writer in your own life? I have I have rules for myself that I um, need to follow in order to be my best self, be able to bring my best self to my writing and my relationships. And it's just it's really basic stuff. But you know what? I've kind of only just figured it out. <laughs> and it's and it's spending time outside. It's exercising, making sure that I'm eating, making sure that I'm sleeping well. You know, once you've got the basics covered, then you can kind of move on to, well, what should I read today? Or, you know, but um, definitely making sure that I check all those points each and every day, concentrating on keeping that sort of the body healthy and nurturing the spirit out in nature every day. Right. So, so bringing that full circle to the novel, what life lessons do you think readers should take from this uh, story? Really check in with the people that you love. Don't, you know, let life get so busy or just assume that because there have been no outbursts that everything is okay. And therefore that's something you can afford to put off for a week or two, you know, every single day, check in with the people that you love. You know, it sounds so cliche, but Mm. just give them a hug, like appreciate the fact that you're on the earth together at this time, you know, and also just to know that despite that people do get sick. And sometimes even though anger always wants a victim, sometimes it's no one's fault. And you just have to be kind to yourself. And, you know, if the worst has already happened, like not beat yourself up over should have, could have, and I, I wish I would have known, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Yasako. Thank you for your time, and thank you for this novel. Aw, thanks. Thanks for the conversation. Yasako Tan is the author of To the Bridge. She was in Victoria. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can contact Talk Suicide Canada, toll-free at one 456 4566 or go to talksuicide.ca for more resources in your province. Marion Farmer, who spells her last name with two Fs, is a unique and formidable character. She's 75 years old. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet from New York. She's tall, talented, and fictional. She's the protagonist of Shawn Michaels' third novel, Do You Remember Being Born? But like many poets, Marion is broke. She desperately wants to help her son buy a house. So when a big technology firm calls and wants her to collaborate with their new poetry AI bot named Charlotte, she puts aside her skepticism and accepts. And from there... The book follows along with Marion during her seven days with Charlotte and what it all means for the values of poetry, technology, work, and family. Sean Michaels, the author of Do You Remember Being Born, joins me from Montreal, where he lives. Hello, Sean, and welcome back to the next chapter. Hi, Ryan. It's great to be here. Good to connect. I love your work. I love this book. Uh, I think this book really excited me, both for its promise for exploring how technology impacts literature, but also for the main character, Marion Farmer. She's a very interesting person. She's a remarkable woman. And looking at the book synopsis, it's clear that she's based on the real poet, uh, Marianne Moore. Uh, so mm-hmm. what was it about Marianne that kind of inspired you to create Marianne and this particular story? So, yeah, Marianne Moore became a real inspiration for me some years ago when I strayed across her story. I knew her work only distantly. And as I discovered the profile of this really remarkable character in 20th century letters. Mm. So Marianne Moore, the real Marianne Moore, uh, like my Marianne Farmer, liked to wear a tricorn hat and a cape. She was one of these true public intellectuals at a time when that really kind of had a certain cultural currency. Uh, You know, she would go on the Tonight Show. She would throw the first pitch at a Yankees game. She wrote the liner notes for... Uh, Muhammad Ali, he, mm. he released an album and she wrote the liner notes. You know, she was this wry, sardonic public figure who at the same time had a real depth and profundity to her and and only became famous 
sort of later in life, in her 50s and 60s. At the same time, she had this peculiar personal life. She never was in any major romantic relationships. She lived with her mother in a little apartment in New York, a one-bedroom mm. apartment, and in fact shared a bed with her mother, her mm. mother's whole life. Uh, so there are all these bits and pieces of kind of contradiction. And then I was particularly tickled or, or provoked by this one episode in Marianne Moore's life in 1955 when she was this famous elderly grand dame and she was approached by Ford, the car company. Mm. And Ford had just released the Thunderbird and they were working on their new car and they were asking Marianne Moore if she would help them name it. And rather than kind of spurn them and walk the other way and turn her back and say, no, I am a woman of art and poetry, <laughs> she was really like excited by the invitation. And she spent months corresponding with someone at Ford, sending various name ideas for their car, wonderful ideas like the Ford Mongoose Civic mm. and the Ford Utopian Turtle Top and the Ford Pastelogram and the Ford Silver Sword and all these wonderful things. And Ford ultimately ignored them all and <laughs> named the car themselves the Ford Edsel. But I thought there was something really interesting about a woman of so much kind of power and dignity and imagination still being kind of lured into a dance with capitalism mm. and with a certain kind of technological advancement. And that was really, those thoughts intersected in interesting ways with some of the thinking I'd been doing on AI technology. And so I started imagining a poet of a similar stature who might too be tantalized into waltzing mm. with a machine. So I want to get into the whole AI and technology and what have you, but let's talk about Marianne or Please, Marian, yeah. uh, who is a famous poet, much like Marianne Moore was. She's an American modernist poet. So how challenging was it for you as a fiction writer, as a music journalist, kind of write poetry in Marianne's voice? <laughs> it was very tough. I mean, with each of my books, I I am an author who's very much drawn to the idea of of doing something he doesn't know how to do mm. and writing a book that breaks from the previous one and explores in a new way and summons its own weather into the room. And with this, poetry seemed instantly, you know, one of the most important aspects of the book. And I am not a poet. I am not a fiction writer who dabbles in poetry. So I had, well, at first I thought, do I have to include any poetry in the book at all? Or can mm -hmm. I just describe the writing of it? But I realized that was sort of ridiculous. And so I thought, all right, Marion is going to be sitting down with this AI called Charlotte. They're going to be writing poetry together and we need to see some of it. And what was strange is I thought of it a little bit as writing fictional poetry. Mm. You know, it's not poetry from my own heart. It's the poetry written by characters. And that liberated me a little bit, but also was sort of uh, a source of deep insecurity <laughs> throughout the <laughs> writing. It's, it's good to share your writing with other people. And the people I most wanted to share my writing with was this time around was poets, were poets, because mm. I was like, is this, does this even work or is it laughable? Right. So what I love about your work, Sean, um, be it whether as a novelist or a music journalist or just a literary type, um, I think your, your debut novel, Us Conductors, obviously won the Giller Prize in 2014. And then the last one, your second book was The Wagers, talking about luck. So this one's talking about AI or AI technology, generative AI uh, in literature. So you always strike me as a curious mind and a curious soul. What was your take in terms of tapping into that zeitgeist, so to speak, in terms of, hey, I'm interested in technology and AI and how this impacts me as a writer. So I began working on this book in 2019. I had stumbled across this much earlier version of the technology that underpins ChatGPT and the AI stuff that's all in the news and in our already entering into our lives these days. And it was this little website uh, made by a coder in Toronto where you could type a few sentences and then it would continue what you had written. And I just stumbled across this and I was immediately disquieted mm. by what it was doing. Because here suddenly was technology that would, you know, join the dance of writing with me, but that for the first time, unlike any of similar tools or things I'd seen over the years, seemed to be able to capture from time to time bits of that almost unnameable 
thing that I spend most of my days concentrating on. So from time to time, it would offer up something that was uh, beautiful or delightful or interesting. And at other times, it would just be bland or dull or confusing or meaningless. But that was new, that aspect of delight. And I found it very, as I say, disquieting. And suddenly I saw a future in which um, this would provoke all kinds of questions, not just in terms of like the economic questions that we're talking about so much these days, but creative questions, you know, in a world where we kind of determine the value of an artist by this notion of solitary genius. Mm. You know, you're only a great artist if you work completely on your own and pull everything completely from your own imagination, which is itself, in my view, a bit of a mirage. How would this technology disrupt that? How would it change it? And then how could it also challenge us to think more creatively about art making and about our relationships with other artists around us? Mm. So that said, how did you create Charlotte's poetry? Charlotte being obviously the poetry AI bot that Marion is connected with to create this kind of long form poem in the book. How did you create the, the poetry bot's poetry? So from the start, I had this notion that um, just as Marion was being lured into collaborating with AI, my book itself could also sort of be infiltrated by AI and mm. bit by bit over the course of the text, the reader might slowly start to feel clues and hints that something was afoot here. And so I used this subtle kind of formatting technique to start indicating and hinting that parts of the book come from somewhere else. Mm. And so some of the book's prose is generated by AI, and, and for that, it was pretty easy. But actually, the poetry was really tough because... Mm. Um, <laughs> Poets will be happy to hear that GPT, the best uh, text AI, is awful at writing poetry, or at least <laughs> at writing free verse. It really only understands rhyming doggerel <laughs> limericks and that kind of thing. And so I found that an engineer, Katie O'Neill, she uh, helped me build a custom fine-tuned AI bot that was trained on poetry I selected for it, particularly mm -hmm. the work of Marianne Moore. And suddenly it was this random, unreliable, but occasionally really surprising and fun, weird little writing machine. And mm -hmm. so I could plug in a few lines of poems and then it would try to continue them in its goofy way. And so f me over hundreds and maybe thousands of hours of generating, generating, editing, refining, I was able to turn that weird output into the poems of Charlotte that appear in the book. Right. Can you read some of these lines from Charlotte's poetry, specifically from Wednesday, day three of the collaboration, and that's on page 96. Page 96, let me find it. Scold butterflies for their cheap melodrama. Make a pattern out of blue and yell, ahoy. <laughs> Sean Michaels reading from his new book, Do You Remember Being Born? So when I think of AI as it stands right now, I just think of like this huge blender that they kind of poured a bunch of books into copyrighted or otherwise. And mm -hmm. what kind of got spit out is the generative kind of stuff, kind of that monkey's typing and you'll get mm -hmm. some good stuff. How did the poetry that your bot created compare to some with the original works that you introduced to it? I think that it compares very unfavorably with the original <laughs> works. I mean, as many, many people have expressed, you know, there's a certain mindlessness, intentionlessness to the technologies that stands today. Charlotte in my book is a little bit more sentient and awake, or maybe a lot more sentient than the technology we actually currently have. But the poetry that can be generated today is not particularly good, but it can be kind of interesting. Mm. However, I really do feel strongly that this stuff is going to get better and better and that really the challenge before us has to do with what it means and what to do when this work is very good. I mean, what do we as humans do with that? Do we reject it? Do we just like pretend it isn't there? Mm. Or do we see if we can be moved by it and I mean I don't have the answers to those questions but I I mean I don't think that's the role of a fiction writer to have the answers I do want to pose some of those questions so without giving too much away John um, working with Charlotte in this book kind of changes Marion's perspective 
on her life and how she approaches her work. How did, for you, how did working with AI on this book influence you? Do you is this the end of the world as, as we know it for literary types, or is it like a brave new world for like creativity and art? I mean, I think that any artist or lover of art who thinks that this spells doom for art is really underestimating how creative and incredible and important artists are and <laughs> like we like there's there's nothing that can knock that off course and i also think that with certainty i'm really curious to see what artists 50 years from now will be doing with these tools but um i do feel like working on this made me think more and more about the ways that good art draws from all kinds of places and that over the course of history the arts have been provoked by all kinds of technological disruptions if it's from the way that literature was changed by the invention of the dictionary or the thesaurus to the way visual art was transformed by the discovery of photography to you know the way that a form like you know video art or even recorded music would have been impossible to imagine a thousand years ago. And so it made me really excited for art that is yet to come and the way that technology and new tools can kind of really transform, upend, and remake, you know, what we love and enjoy most about human life. Well, Sean, here's to art and writing that is yet to come. Thank you very much. Thanks for the conversation. Appreciate it. Sean Michaels is the author of Do You Remember Being Born? He was in Montreal. That's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. Thanks this week to Sarah Cooper, Laura Antonelli, and the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, I'll bring you my interview with Joan Thomas about her novel Wild Hope. It's a mystery that probes important questions about privilege, wealth, and who gets to determine the planet's future in the face of climate change. And my colleague Ali Hassan and I will join forces, and he and I take the program to the fall ahead. Fall is the busiest time in the book world, and in the weeks to come, we will have interviews with Cherie Demeline, Brett Butt, and Asha Shanti Bromfield. I'm Ryan B. Patrick. Thanks for listening to The Next Chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.